Okay, remember last week when we did eight chapters in one yes. class? Yeah. Yes. Okay, we're going to slow down now. <laughs> in some ways, we really finished time. In some ways. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Let's take a trip down memory lane. The title page told me, Torah observance is accessible to me. The introduction told me that uh, the book is going to work with me. It's going to be my personal trainer. Chapter 1 notified me about the underlying duality of my nature. In Chapter 2, I learned about the godly soul. Chapter 3, I learned about its composition, meaning its ten faculties. In Chapter 4, I learned about its three garments, meaning the modes of behavior. That set me up for understanding later the difference between being and doing. Chapter 5, I learned about Torah study. Chapter 6, I learned about the composition as well as the modes of expression of the animal soul, which were the reverse of the godly soul. Chapter 7 and Chapter 8, I learned about negativity, what we call klipa, around us in the universe, what can be elevated and what cannot. And basically, when the, with, when the first eight chapters were done, I had a whole new lexicon, a whole new... Um, vocabulary and frame of reference for looking at myself and looking at the world around me. Fine. Chapter 9 got back into the conflict, the small city. Chapter 10 told me how it's, how a tzaddik manages that. He defeats the other side or even transforms, transforms them into his ally. Chapter 11 told me about the Russia, the one who is full of regret because he's always slipping, he's always wavering back and forth always what's always. We said that's you know, a relative term. But the point is, things are not under control. Chapter 12 introduced the Benini, who, for whom things are under control. Perfect control, behaviorally. Inside, there's all types of conflict brewing, but behaviorally, he's got control. And we learned about him in 12, 13, 14. He doesn't have to transform his emotions. He only has to take control of his behavior. He uses Maya Shalta the brain rules over the heart. Impulse control, chapter 15, we learned about the fact that even if a Bainini were to somehow <coughs> naturally or intuitively end up being a Bainini, but by default, that's not good enough. There has to be toil, there has to be work. Chapter 16 and 17, we learned about a new definition of Mayak Shalta Alev. Mayak Shalta Alev doesn't just mean control yourself through impulse control, it means change yourself through meditation. Chapters 18 through 25, we said, well, what about while you're waiting for those internal changes to take place, while you're still feeling that conflict between behavior and emotion, how do you get yourself congruent? So 18 through 25, we learned a quick fix, how to get yourself congruent really fast, the uh, spiritual adrenaline rush, like we called it. And basically, after that, after we got to chapter 25, what else do you want? What else do you want? One through eight was knowledge of your condition and a new way of looking at the world. Nine through 15 was control yourself. 16 through 17 was slowly change yourself through meditation. 18 through 25 was quickly change yourself through arousing the avamisateris, the, the latent love that's hardwired in your neshama. What else do you want? You are given the goal, which is behavioral perfection. You are given tools to attaining that goal. I'm counting three tools, depending on how you divide things. Yeah? You're given three main tools. First, you're given an objective, a goal. Control your behavior. And then you're given three tools. The first one I'm counting is the first translation of Mayan Shalatalev, which is impulse control. The second one was the deeper level of slowly get yourself congruent, align yourself emotionally to the behaviors. And the third one was arouse the avamisateris, the latent love that's hidden in your heart. What else do you want? So, in a certain, in a certain way, we're really done. What else could you need? Then why, why is Tanya continuing? 
at this point, Tanya's continuing really as a troubleshooting guide. Everything in 1 through 25 is a perfect system, but we don't live in a perfect world. So, at this point, I'm coming to the Alter Rebbe, I'm not complaining that there's anything lacking in the system. The system is, it works. It works if you work it. The problem is, there are obstacles which might prevent me from working it. And that's what Tanya is dealing with now. Obstacles in my life that might prevent me from doing what I was taught to do in 1 through 25. <coughs> specifically, specifically, inner emotional turmoil that is that arises from various causes chapters 26 through 34 are basically all about getting emotionally healthy why why do we have 26 to 34 focusing on getting emotionally healthy very simple because even though 1 through 25 is a perfect system with a variety of tools that you can use for achieving your, your goal in life, if you're not emotionally healthy, you're not going to implement the methods that you've been taught. You will lack the, the motivation, the drive. So 26 to 34 is troubleshooting. It's dealing with negative emotions that could arise, that could derail you from doing what you know you ought to be doing. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. So 26 deals with depression. I always hesitate to use the word depression because depression is a term we use in everyday conversation, but it also has a clinical meaning, obviously. I'm not a mental health professional. When I'm using the word depression, I'm not using it as a clinical term. I'm not talking about something biochemical. I'm talking about oxfos, being sad. Chapter 26 says like this. Chapter 26 starts with a, a marshal, a parable, a metaphor of a wrestler. There is a wrestler, and he <coughs> is superior to his opponent. He's better trained, he's better prepared, he's stronger, everything. Okay. And by all rights, he should win the wrestling match. This is the beginning of chapter 26. But on the day of the meet, he's in a foul mood for whatever reason. He's just a character in a parable, so I don't know his story. I don't know his reason why he's in a bad mood, but he's in a bad mood. And he goes into the wrestling match feeling down, emotionally down. And what happens? Even though he's the superior opponent, he loses. Okay. What's the point of the metaphor? The point of the metaphor is like this. You can be the superior opponent. In other words, the Nefesh Elikis, by all rights, should beat the Nefesh Bamas. You can be better trained. You have 25 chapters of Tanya. But if you let life get to you, if you let yourself get emotionally down, you're not going to execute effectively. That is a rule in life, and this is very, 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 very important. Why does the topic of simcha, of joy, come up in Tanya? Simcha comes up in Tanya because it is a known rule that everything you do, if you do it joyfully, you do it better. Everything that you are capable of doing, any skill, any task, you will perform it more effectively on a, on a higher level if you do it joyfully. Whether, whether it be wrestling or it be serving Hashem. So we have to make sure that we're going to stay joyful 
Because if not, we will be unable to properly serve Hashem. What's the point here? Very, very, very important point. And it's not explicitly uh, brought out here in Tanya, but it's clear from the context that in the world around us, in society, joy has become an idol. People like fun because they think it makes them happy. But happiness is the idol. Which is why people in today's society feel justified to do what makes them happy. It's the idol so much as the goal. It is an idol. It's the goal. Goal is bad enough. Idol is even worse. And I'll tell you why it's and I'll tell you why it's an idol. An idol is anything to which you attribute uniquely godly characteristics. If you ask someone, why is it important to be happy? They don't have an answer. It's axiomatic. You have to be happy because being happy. They don't tell you what they're going to do with their happiness. That's like asking somebody, why is it good to be rich? Why? Because then you're rich. What are you going to do with your money? No, 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 I haven't gotten that far. I'm just going to have it. You're going to invest it? No, no, I'm just going to have it. I'm going to have my wealth. Anything that becomes valuable just because it is what it is, is an idol. But I don't think people like money just for the sake of money. Do no, they wouldn't. That my that my money, point my point my point was <laughs> that nobody would be as foolish to say, I want money just to have money. But people do say, I want happiness because of happiness. No, let's say they say I want happiness to serve God properly. So they don't say that. They all say but even if they do, then they, are they allowed to do whatever they want to be happy to serve God properly? So they're going to say that argument won't even arise. If you wanted to be happy in order to serve God, then the only happiness that would be valuable to you would be that which is aligned with serving God. The point is, in society around us today, happiness has taken on intrinsic axiomatic value. So that I don't have to tell you what I'm going to use my happiness for. I want happiness because that itself is the goal. And that's why I say that's an idol. Because only God is just because he is. I am what I am. Popeye said it too, but God said it first. Anything else that you say, well, it is because it is. It is important because it, it's important. Is an idol. Anything but God is only important in as much as it is useful in my service of God. So if I say to you, why do you want a pastrami sandwich? Because of pastrami sandwiches. Well, that's an idol. But if you say, why do you want a pastrami sandwich? Because it's a pleasant way of fueling up so I can do the next mitzvah. <coughs> Beautiful, fine, no problem. And if that's the, if that's the truth, make a bracha and go eat. Doesn't make, non-Jews, Jews, doesn't we make a difference. We have a struggle with that, too. Doesn't make Every a difference. Every time you eat a pastrami sandwich, doesn't you have to think difference. about Hashem. It's hard. Yeah. But isn't, isn't it make a bracha, you're thinking of Hashem. You think of Hashem. Right. True. Done that. Mm -hmm. Isn't happiness the goal is because it makes me feel good? In other words, I want the, ha the pastrami sandwich, not for the pastrami sandwich, but because it makes me feel good. So isn't so, that about uh, worshiping yourself? Again, it doesn't matter if it's money or if it's a sandwich or if it's happiness or if it's finding true love, anything that is important because you've deemed this thing important is an idol. Mm -hmm. What's the opposite of an idol? That I want to attain this thing because I need it in my service of Hashem. So let's pull back here. Chapter 26 comes along and says like this. Joy is very important. Why is joy very important? Because... Everything you do, you do it better when you do it joyfully. You perform better, you execute better when you do it joyfully. Can you serve Hashem without joy, theoretically? Yeah, but not well. Not very well. So if you value service of Hashem, which is the only thing that really truly has value, then I'm going to need some joy. 
Not because of the intrinsic value of joy, but because I need the joy in order to serve. Eve do es Hashem besimcha. But then I still have the problem. What if what brings you joy is inherently sinful? Oh. Don't you deserve to be happy? If someone's in a bad marriage, don't they deserve to get divorced and be happy so they could serve God daily with joy? What, what's that? Yeah, and that's not sinful, sinful to be divorced. I was thinking of something else, but I don't want to get too excited. Deserve is inherent. <laughs> well, I was thinking of homosexuality. If... If the whole... See, the question doesn't even arise, because if the only reason I need the joy is in order to serve Hashem, then it doesn't even enter the discussion that I would do something that's not aligned with the service of Hashem in order to pursue joy. So you do okay. one sin in order to do lots of mitzvah. I'm just saying, there okay. are like tools rate, of... I, I, I don't want to get into a... I could okay. discuss this topic at length, and, and it's not even the main point. Like I said, the Alter Rebbe doesn't even explicitly make this point. I'm pointing it out to you because I think it's so important because it's so different than the way... This is, this is the white on the page of Tanya. This is not the black on the page. This is the white on the page. I'm just pointing out to you that we're going to talk about joy for 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31. I mean, 32 is a little bit of... We're going to skip and talk about something else. 33, 34. We're going to talk about joy for 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 chapters. I just wanted to let you know that it's not because joy is like joy in society around us. It's because the wrestler, the wrestler needs to win. And one of the things he needs in order to win is not just to be the stronger and not to be the better trained uh, and better prepared opponent, but he needs to be joyful. So we need the joy in order to do everything we're, we're taught in the first 25 chapters. Okay, let's get that out of the way. Yeah. Does the joy give the ambition? The ambition, I'm not sure how you're Does, defining ambition. What is it? What is, what, he already what has drive? a goal. He knows, he knows the meaning of life. He knows why he's here. He's here to serve Hashem the best he can. The problem is, sometimes, when you're feeling down, even though you know what's right, even though you know what you would like to be doing, you just don't have the drive. The get up and go. You don't have the drive, the whatever, you, the oomph, whatever you want to call it. So the joy gives that drive? Gives you that extra power, maybe. The joy is... Like the winner... The, the, the he call, he, call, he, call, he calls it... He, okay, What's so he time? calls it... Psichas halev. An openness of the heart. In other words, the energy's flowing. The energy's flowing. So everything's moving. Everything's alive. When I'm in a state of joy, then the energy is flowing. When I'm in the opposite emotional state, everything gets... Stagnant, closed up, and then I'm not functioning, and I'm not performing, and then the avoidance of Hashem suffers. Okay, fine. Chapter 26 deals with two main categories. You're going to see here why I really wanted to stop that other discussion, and we could have that other discussion another time at length. At length, there's so much to be said about it. But I want to get into the content of chapter 26, the black on the page. Okay, in chapter 26, he deals with two main sources, very, very general, broad categories here, of uh, sadness. These are very broad categories. Material problems and spiritual problems. Okay? Pretty broad categories. Material problems means... Which means family issues... <coughs> health issues, money issues, which pretty much are the three main sources of worldly, mundane problems. Then in the second half, to the half of the chapter, he deals with spiritual problems. What are spiritual problems? Spiritual problems is talking about guilt, that I've done the wrong thing in the past, and it weighs on me. He deals with material problems first. I never saw this stated explicitly anywhere, but it's intuitive to me that the Alter Rebbe knows his customers and he deals with the sadness over material problems before the sadness over spiritual problems because, let's be real, last time you were sad, it was probably, I would say last time because 99 times out of 100 when we're sad, it's because of material problems, not spiritual problems. 
Okay, maybe some people here say, no, 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 I'm, it's always about spiritual problems. But okay, you're very, you're on a high level. That's good. That's good. You have a lot to feel Here's how to deal with material problems, even the big three, family, health, and money. And to cleanse oneself from any trace of worry in the world. This is what he says. There are different methods, by the way, in Chassidus, but I'm telling you what he says in chapter 26. He says like this. First thing you got to understand is that everything Hashem does is good. This is the Gemara. The Gemara says, Just like you have to make a bracha for good tidings, person has to make a bracha, has to acknowledge, even muster up some gratitude for bad tidings. This is basic Judaism. Even though it's hard to see people suffer. We're not talking about seeing people suffer, by the way. Thank you for bringing that up. You're not seeing anyone suffer. This is about you. This is about your problems. How to react to other people's suffering is a totally different discussion. We're not talking about it. We're talking about your problems. This is not a prescription for being apathetic to human suffering. This is a prescription for rising above your own problems. This is only to be applied to yourself. And since you bring it up, I'll address it. One of the terms that's used is lekabel yisurim ba'ava. This is also from the Gemara. This is the common term that the sages uses. To receive or to accept, to be mekabel, Yisurim, affliction, ba'ava, lovingly. This is a little bit my own thing I'm making up here, so I want, I want to be transparent about it, but let's say UPS drops off a box that says uh, Best Buy on the box, and it has my address number on it. But clearly it was an error. My neighbor ordered some electronics and they sent it to my house. Do I get to open it and keep it? No. No, I cannot open it and keep it. It's not mine. We all know you can only accept that which is sent to you. I can accept my problems. I can accept whatever trials and tribulations Hashem puts me through because they're my trials and tribulations. I can't accept your trials and tribulations on your behalf. I can't be matzik es dinoi, you know, to say Hashem is just in all of his ways for putting you through hell. That's not the model of Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu, when he heard about Sedoim, these were wicked people. And he said, All of a sudden, Avram Avinu is worried about a theodicy. Will the judge of the whole world not do justice? He was appalled. Now, Avram Avinu personally had ten tests from, from, the, from his early childhood. He, he, was, he was hunted, he was hounded, and it never bothered him. Never bothered him. He was thrown into a, into a, into a fiery uh, furnace. He left his home. He showed up. There was a famine. I mean, all types of stuff. It never bothered him. So, let's just remember. We're not talking about how to regard the problem of human suffering. It's not what this is about. And if you... If you dare say that this is that, and I say dare because every single time I've ever taught this subject, every single time, and I promise it's going to happen today too, <laughs> someone comes up to me afterwards and says, but Rabbi, what about, 
and then they describe some terrible, terrible situation that they were never in. This is not about human suffering. This is about your suffering. So if you're a Holocaust survivor, you can come up to me after the class and we can talk about what about the Holocaust. And you can tell me how you've been able to deal with living with that trauma. But if you're not a Holocaust survivor, so the response is, I don't know, it's a crazy, scary, terrible thing, and we're not talking about that. We're not talking about that. We're talking about your problems, your trauma. Don't ask me about the Holocaust. Yes? <laughs> Parent who has a child is going through through right. a hard time because so we know that, yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay, I, I don't want to get derailed on this, but it's important you're asking this. Okay, what do you, what do you, a parent who has a child is going through a hard time, okay, or a spouse or whatever, so anyone you love, okay. You have to distinguish. You have to distinguish. You know, Again, it's the same idea as I can accept my problems. I can't accept your problems. So I can accept, I'm not going to say, why me? Why did Hashem not give me nachas from my kid? Why does he force me to have to deal with the kid? Well, come on. That's it's terrible. But simultaneously, I can say, oh, my heart breaks that my child is suffering, suffering right now. The most poignant example I have of this I had an experience one time. I was in a hospital twice, two different hospitals, one day, two visitations, and both were old men who had just lost their wife of like decades, you know, years. Um, and it was such a, a stark contrast. One of them was crying, and he was saying, he's saying, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? She always took care of me. And whatever, I mean, you can't judge a person the moment of, most profound loss, but it did strike me as somewhat like selfish. What am I going to do? Well, you know, how am I going to take care of myself? It seemed whatever. Self-involved. It, it was. It seemed self-involved. Yeah. Later that day, <laughs> I was in a also in a hospital, and there was an old man. And he was crying, and he said, "She always wanted me to die first <laughs> And I and I, I thought that was a funny thing to say. I just listened. And he said, because she didn't want to leave me with, with you know, alone. So he, he, he was like crying and he was saying that I hope she doesn't feel bad, that she didn't leave feeling that she had, you know, left me and not, not taken care of me. In other words, he had just lost his wife, but he wasn't crying that he lost his wife. He was crying that maybe she left this world feeling bad that she was leaving him. So... It was like the two exact opposite reactions. One was self-involved, like, oh, my loss. And the other one was, it's not about my loss, it's, oh, no, what about this person I love who maybe experienced some type of emotional uh, angst. angst. Yeah. So you have to distinguish between the two. Most problems are not going to be so clean that they affect one person, you know, especially if something that involves a family or, or a business partner or a community. <clears throat> But you have to distinguish. I have sensitivity. I have compassion for the way it's affecting others. But that's a separate thing from the equanimity and the serenity that I have about how it's affecting me. So let's keep them separate. Okay. So how do we deal with worldly problems? Even major issues like family, health, and money. It says like this, you have to understand that everything that happens is good, right? This is from the Gemara, just like we are obligated to make a blessing on good tidings, etc. He doesn't finish the sentence because Al-Tarebbe avoids saying negative things, and if he can imply it and not say it explicitly, you, you know, avoid saying a negative word. How do you understand that, though? Okay, so the fact that you're supposed to be grateful for bad tidings, that's, that's, that's in the Gemara. You don't need to learn Chassidus to, to know that. 
to explain the mechanics of it, you have to learn to say this. How do you get joy? Follow what I'm saying here. Any learned Jew knows that you have to be as grateful for bad tidings as good tidings. But only if you learn this can you explain intelligently why that's so. So here in the first half, half of chapter 26, he explains the mechanics what makes that so? Here's how it works. Everything in reality exists on layers and levels. Very, 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 very roughly or basically, let us generalize that there are four dimensions to reality, often called four worlds. They correspond to the four letters of Hashem's name. If you would imagine the four letters of the ineffable name Yudke Vovke arranged vertically with Yud on the top, and then the higher He, and then the Vov, and then the lower He, you know, like Chinese, top to bottom. That would sort of be a visual depiction of the flow of energy through the four worlds. In other words, it starts with a yod, which is a little compressed dot. That's the condensed code for all of reality. Then there's a hay, which is the expansiveness. That's the widening of that code or the unpacking of the code. Then a vav, which is a pipeline, a straight line that draws down the energy, the creative energy, and then another hay, which is another widening or fleshing out of the code. So we have four worlds, four letters. In general, those four worlds and four letters are divided into two categories, what we call, and here's an Aramaic term, two Aramaic terms, because it's from Zahar, which is an Aramaic, Alma Disgasia and Alma Disgalia. Alma means Elam, world, Iskasya means covered. Isgalia means revealed. So Alma Iskasya means the hidden worlds. The higher two worlds are considered hidden. Alma Disgalia, the revealed worlds, those are the lower two. What means hidden? What means revealed? Okay. So from our perspective, the way we know reality, we experience reality in the lowest of the four worlds, Elam HaAsiyah, and within Asiya itself, in the physical dimension of Asiyah, Elam HaAsiyah HaGashmi. So that's how we relate to reality. Not that we're not experiencing reality on all four levels at all times, but because we are so uh, sensitive to the phenomenological stimuli, meaning the physical stuff that's going on, it bombards us and, and drowns out our sensitivity to the spiritual stimuli. So we're experiencing reality on all four of those levels all the time, but we're really only uh, aware of the bodily stuff because it's just what is stronger. That's, it's just a strong, it's stronger, it's stronger stimulus for us. Okay. <clears throat> when you ask us to describe reality, we, we, we think of reality, I mean, we even say, I mean, even it's wrong. We're like, you know, we can something that's physical is real. Spirituality is not less real. To the contrary, it's more real. It's the source. Anything that exists in this world, the table, it only came to the physical world because it devolved through various different maskings and and concealments until it became physical. But the archetypical table is a spiritual table from which the physical table devolved. So everything starts in the spiritual realms and it comes down. And, and it comes down incrementally. You know, one level, another level. Each one of these levels is like another translation. What is good? Well, good is a subjective term. 
Good depends what you like. What do you like? So, you know, five-year-olds, you say, what's good? We're going to go out to eat. What's good? What's good? Greasy pizza with the oil floating on top. <laughs> Mushy, white-colored French fries. That's good. You say, no, we're going to take you to a fancy restaurant with a brick oven pizza with goat cheese. No, that's gross. No, that's good. Okay. We are like the little children. We don't have very refined tastes. What's good to us? <clears throat> we have very simple tastes. If it feels good, it's good. So you're going to ask me, you know, this thing that happened to you, was it good? Uh, yeah, it was good. Well, why was it good? Because it felt good. <laughs> that, 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 we're very simple. Now the truth is, everything that happens is good. We just don't relate to its goodness. In fact, the stuff that we don't relate to as being good is precisely because it's more good. It's a higher level of good. So the five-year-old turns his nose up at the brick oven pizza like, ooh, yucky. Not because it's worse, because actually it's better. Think about, a, again, the five-year-old, the picking on the five-year-old. But imagine a five-year-old has a birthday party. And you do the American ritual where you get the kid all hyped up on sugar from the birthday cake. And then while his uh, sugar high is waning and he's anyways emotionally crashing, you do this sensory overload thing where all the kids get in a circle and you do the presents, right? It's always a formula for disaster. <laughs> and imagine you want to really make it traumatic. So what do you do? You want to give your five-year-old a birthday present. Now, you know that your five-year-old wants a toy truck. This toy truck costs $50 at Toys R Us. But you decide that you're going to be an awesome father. What are you going to do? You don't need a $50 toy truck. I'm going to get you something even better than that. A thousand times better than that. Give him a box. About the size of a toy truck. And he rips open the wrapping paper and he opens the box. Where's the toy truck? There's no toy truck. Shakes the box. It's empty. No, it's not empty. There's an envelope. He opens the envelope. It's a certificate of deposit for $50,000. With that certificate of deposit, you can buy a thousand trucks. No. This five-year-old has collapsed on the floor, and he is sobbing. Because... He wanted a truck. You gave him a piece of paper. No, it's not a piece of paper. It's a CD for $50,000. That means nothing in five-year-old language. There are experiences that we relate to readily as being positive experiences. That's the toy truck, the greasy pizza, the white mushy french fries. There are experiences which we relate to as being really awful. Because they are the $50,000 CD or the brick oven pizza with the goat cheese. Normally, when things come down the pipeline, they get translated world to world to world to world. Because if you were to experience it as it is in the highest world, it would be unrelatable, and hence your subjective experience would be a negative one, even though objectively it's good, in fact it's a higher good. And that's why it gets translated, it gets muted, it gets dumbed down, so that you can relate to it. And that's called revealed good. But sometimes... There's hidden good. What's hidden good? Hidden good means it wasn't translated. It wasn't dumbed down for you. You're receiving it the way it is up there. And that's why you're not relating to it as good. So what do we have to remember? Ashrei hagever asher tiyesreno yudke. Ko, yud and he. That's the divine name used in that verse in Psalms. 
Ashrei, fortunate, Hagever, is the person, Asher who gets Musa, who gets rebuke from Yudke. Why does it use that name of Hashem? Those are the top two letters. Yud and He and Vav and He. So the top two letters, Yudke, means the top two worlds, Alma Discasia, the hidden worlds. When you're receiving Musa, when you're receiving rebuke, when you're receiving a hard time from Hashem, that's coming from the higher source. And that's why you're experiencing it as negative. Not because it's truly negative, it's actually good, and in fact it's a higher level of good, and that's why it's unrelatable and you experience it as loss, as, as trauma, as, as grief. But it's really good. That's the mechanics of just like you make a blessing on good tidings, you make a blessing on not good tidings. Why? Because there's really nothing that's not good from Hashem. It's all good, there's just two types of good. There's good that's relatably good, and there's good that's not relatably good. I don't relate to it being good. But there's, an, there's another important step here. There's another important step, very important step. Because at this point, I've only explained to you how it works. I haven't yet explained to you why you should be okay with it. I mean, intellectually you're okay with it. Okay, fine, I get it, that's how it works. But I'm saying emotionally why that should comfort you. I get it, conceptually, fine, okay, it's a higher good. But l let's be honest, you know what, that's like, you tell me, well, really, the greasy pizza and the white mushy french fries, that, that's, that's kid stuff. You should really like the brick oven pizza, the goat cheese. And, you know what? Maybe I should. But sue me. I'm not sophisticated. I have very childish taste. I like what I like. I like what I like. Okay, I hear you. You're telling me that I should like the opera better than the Three Stooges. But I like the Three Stooges. What do you want from me? I'm a simple guy. So you're telling me that when I find a $20 bill in my pocket, that that's good. But when I get a paper cut that feels like it's going to kill me, that's an even greater good. Okay, so I'm a man of simple taste. I prefer finding the $20 bill. I don't relate to the hidden good of the paper cut. To me, it feels bad. Sue me. What do you want from me? So there's another step here. There's another step. <laughs> Very important. The next step is the Alter Rebbe says, you have to know what your priorities are in life. This, this, is, this is important. This is essential. You have to know what your priorities are in life. Would you rather have an easy life, pleasurable life, what you subjectively relate to as a quote-unquote good life? Or would you rather have a life of closeness to Hashem? I have to be able to answer that question. Because if my answer is, you know what? I'd rather have an easy life, comfortable life. Then everything we've just explained is no, of, of no benefit. Because, okay, you told me that the hidden good is actually higher good. But I don't like higher good. I like lower good. Give me some of that lower good. Unless I'm forced to, to, to prioritize and say like this. I'm not looking for it. God forbid, I'm not looking for problems. In fact, every single morning in Birkas HaShachar, what do we say? Do not bring me to an Nesoyen. I say, Hashem, don't test me. I can't take this. I don't look for problems. But if Hashem chooses to send me a little bit of challenge, hopefully just a little bit, then I have to make a decision. What do I value more? An, a readily pleasant experience that I relate to as good, fun, pleasurable, whatever? Or, conversely, whatever experience will bring me closer to God, even if it is intrinsically more painful and unpleasant? I have to answer that question. If I know 
that the stuff that I don't relate to as being good, I don't relate to as being good precisely because it's from a higher level, it's a loftier level, which is what makes it unrelatable, and therefore it's coming from a more spiritual place, closer to God's essence, as it were, then if I value godliness, if I value closeness to Hashem, or like the al Rebbe says, what's, close, what's goodness? What, what's toiv? What's the real goodness for me? Closeness to God. So let's just recap this. Everything is good. There's just two, times, two types of good. There's good and there's really good. And it, it first sounds counterintuitive, but the good is the stuff that's obviously good. And the really good is the stuff that is... doesn't feel good, doesn't look good, isn't obviously good. The reason it's not obviously good is precisely because it's coming from a higher level. <coughs> and if, here's the important point here, if I have chosen a life of closeness to God, then I am going to, not that I'll look for it, again, I'm not looking for it, but when it comes to me, I will cherish these hardships knowing that they're actually coming from a higher level. But there's still a gap between appreciation and joy. There's still a gap, absolutely. So you can appreciate it and understand it, Yes. but how do you get yourself to be joyous again, when you're only human? Again, I have to ask myself what my priorities are. So your priorities are good, but still there's a gap. What do I really want in life? What do I really want? Do I want pleasure and comfort and, and, and easy experiences? Or do I want closeness to God? If I want closeness to God, and I'm getting closeness to God, I'm getting precisely what I want, even though... I understand subjectively the experience is a painful one. And yes, I am human. And I'm not going to not feel the pain. I can't pretend I don't feel what I feel. But the pain is just the pain. The pain is a stimulus response. I can't control pain. But I can control my interpretation of the pain. You know, when a, when a marathon runner is crossing the finish line, is in, in excruciating pain... But the, the marathon runner isn't saying, woe is me, what a pathetic life, I'm in so much pain. Yeah, but what about the guy three people behind him who lost? They're not saying, wow, I'm so happy I'm number three. They're made, not I finished the race. No, no, I was no, no, number 20 oh. and I was number three. Hold on a second. But I'm guys, saying, like, our guys, goal is to be happy. I'm not going to use metaphors if you get overly focused on the metaphors. <laughs> metaphors are just tools. Do not... I'm just saying, you're losing, <laughs> you can't be second. joyous. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. I mean, we, 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 just one second. I just want to clarify here. Forget about the marathon runner. I'm not going to use metaphors. If you guys get overly focused on the metaphors, forget, forget the metaphor. Forget the metaphor. You have two experiences that are being offered to you. And the truth is, they're not even being offered to you because... It's not even your choice. It's not a choice. God doesn't say, by the way, you ready for this? You ready? I'm about to put you through hell. You ready? Okay, here we go. It doesn't happen that way. But let's pretend that a second before it all goes down, you know, God is just heads up, you know. Ask yourself this question. Do I want the experience that's going to feel good or the experience that I know is good. In fact, it's more good. I think there's a word for more good. I think it's called better. <laughs> Again, this only works if you are clear in your priorities in life. That I would rather have the unpleasant experience that brings me closer to God. If that's not your priority, then yes, this method doesn't work. We have one, two, three, four, I have like a bunch of questions, and then, and then five. Okay, yeah, I'm going to go in order from back to the front. Actually, I know that this 
seemingly very painful experience, whatever it might be, the death of a, God forbid, a child, a very serious illness of the child, whatever, the list is too long. Yeah. We feel that pain. I mean, if we deny the pain, we're going to be in bad shape. So right. does Tanya talk about it? Do you, can you address Okay, so let me just explain to you. Pain is not an emotion. Pain is a sensation, not an emotion. So although I might say, I feel pain, but as a feeling, I would also say, I feel hungry, I feel cold, I feel tired. But those aren't feelings. Those are sensations. Pain is not an emotion. And because you've been studying Tanya now for several months, I have the ability to phrase the question this way, which makes life so much easier for me. You know pain's not an emotion. Because I know that you all know where emotions come from. Where do emotions come from? I don't meditate myself into pain. Pain is a stimulus response. Pain is a response to stimulus. How I feel about the pain, the judgment, the story I tell myself about the pain, that, that's an emotion. So, I get the paper cut, ow, that's pain. Oh, why me, poor me, that's an emotion. The suffering. The suffering. So what do we do about the pain? You feel the pain. Nobody can tell you, ah, don't feel it. You can't not feel pain, even emotional pain. Emotional pain is not an emotion, by the way. Emotional pain means it has an emotional cause. Emotional pain is not an emotion. Pain is a sensation, not an emotion, which means it's an automatic response. You don't control it. You can't make it less. You can't make it more. You can't make it less. You can distract yourself from it, but you can't make it less. And you can't actually make the pain more. You can add to the pain by overlaying it with self-pity, which we call, you know, that's the distinction between the suffering and the pain. The pain is the stimulus response, which is unavoidable. The suffering is the self-inflicted uh, cerebral meaning that you attribute to the pain, where you give yourself this victim role. But the answer, to answer your question is, what do you think about the pain? There's nothing to do about pain. You just feel pain, feeling not as, a, as an emotion, but as a, as, a, as a sensation, and you go through it. But even when I'm experiencing the sensation of pain, I do not have to turn that into negative emotions. I can have painful sensations, even emotional pain, and generate positive emotions. They're not the same thing. Unfortunately, we live in a world that equates pain with sadness and joy with happiness. And that's the biggest lie. Pain doesn't make you sad. Pain makes you hurt. And pleasure doesn't make you happy. There's no critical mass of pleasure. There's no amount of pleasure that will ever add up to one iota of joy. Or give you a consistent joy. Any joy. There's no have, joy from pleasure. Momentary pleasure. There's, but pleasure is not joy. Pleasure is a sensation. Pain is not sadness. Pain is just a sensation. So, to answer the question again, what do you do about pain? You go through it. Or I think Winston Churchill is hot right now because of, I don't know, somebody told me the Academy Awards or something. So Winston Churchill said, if you're going through hell, keep going. I don't know if that was in the movie or if it wasn't, but that's a real, okay. I, I, there's a bunch of questions. I, let's do these really fast and be finished in the next 90 seconds. Okay, yes. Um, but, all of this makes sense, but then why, let's say when we're diving on Rosh Hashanah and similar, then why do we ask for the question is on Rosh Hashanah, for example, why do we ask for real, revealed good? Let me give you the 30-second answer. This, this is an hour class, but, I mean, this question, the answer takes an hour, but I'm going to do it in 30 seconds. We learn from Hannah. 
You said Rosh Hashanah, Chana is the Haftorah on Rosh Hashanah. Eli, Kohen Gadol, comes in, he sees her whispering, murmuring. He says, are you drunk? She says, I'm not drunk, I'm, I'm davening for a child. This is all Sikha of the Rebbe. Basically, if you learn the Rambam, the Halacha is somebody who's drunk in, 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 the, in the Mishkan, in the Beis Amikdosh, you don't talk to them, you get them out immediately. He didn't mean, are you, are you chemically drunk? He meant, are you drunk? Are you self-indulgent? You're in the holiest place in the world, and you're talking about your personal problems, that you want a child? So inappropriate. So she said, no, 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 it's not for me. I want a child to give to Hashem. He said, that's what they all say. God, give me a million dollars so I can give a lot of tzedakah. And then Hashem says, no, it's okay, I don't need your tzedakah. No, no, Hashem, you really need my tzedakah. She says, no, 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 I'm going to give this child to Hashem. And that's what she did. We daven like Chana. Chana says, it's not for me, it's for Hashem. So, when I daven on Rosh Hashanah for revealed good, what am I, what am I really daven? Rosh Hashanah is coronation of the king. I'm asking Hashem, Hashem rule the whole world. When Hashem makes a Kiddush Hashem, you know, who makes a bigger chil Hashem? From a Yid or from a Yid? From a Yid. Who makes a bigger chil Hashem? Hashem or a Yid? The biggest chil Hashem is Hashem. Hashem makes the biggest chil Hashem. When Hashem makes sure that his children are taken care of in a way that's obvious and understandable, that's a Kiddush Hashem. So we say, Hashem, rule over the world. Show that you're the boss. Me, I have faith. It doesn't bother me. I'm, personally, it doesn't bother me that, you know, I, go, I do the right thing and I get punished. I can deal with that. I understand there are many calculations involved, many factors, no problem. But as far as PR, Hashem, it's not good PR. Let's show the world that you take care of your children. So Rosh Hashanah, when we ask for revealed good, it's not, I want revealed good because I want a comfortable life. No, I want, a re I want revealed good in my life Lechana wanted a child because I want to be able to give this to Hashem. I want to show the world that Hashem is running the world. And the way the world sees that, the world has very simple tastes. And they see Hashem's running the world when they see that Hashem's servants are taken care of. Okay, that was, that was more than 30 seconds. Okay. Um, yeah. We ask for revealed good, not just on Rosh Hashanah, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah, technically when you said that what we experience as not good is coming from a higher source, that's, that's an expression I've heard a lot over the years. Yeah. I'm asking if in the future you could... Just elaborate a little bit more about you know, how when it comes down, it's you know, dumped down, as you said, or it's not. Could, if you could higher source just means it wasn't translated. That's what I mean. Translated. It wasn't translated. It wasn't translated. It wasn't simplified. If I would take you up to the higher worlds, and I would show you what goes on there, and I would say, what do you think of that? Tell, tell me, you know, ascribe meaning to it. It would be all wrong. Yeah? No, my question is, is there revealed good that we know this in this physical world is revealed good that comes from that higher source <laughs> so that we don't have to suffer in order to achieve okay. that higher good. This is a great question. Can we have our cake and eat it too? And maybe let's finish with this. Let's finish not with this. And have our cake, eat it too, and not getting wet. Can we get the higher good and experience it as good? And the answer, and I'm, only, I'm going to limit myself to, the, to chapter 26, and this, by the way, is not the end of chapter 26, but it's the end of the first half of chapter 26. We still have to deal with the second half, the second half which is uh, spiritual problems. So I guess next week, I mean, Hashem will deal with the second half of chapter 26, which is spiritual problems. But let's end how to deal with the material problems. It says like this. When Mashiach comes, you're going to see all the problems revealed for what they really were all along. So the answer is, it might not be till Mashiach comes. And for some things, for sure, we're not going to see how they're good until Mashiach comes. But when Mashiach comes, we're not only going to be able to, um, you know, I, I accept why it was necessary, why I had to go through that. You know, it really, it, it was all, in the long run, it was for the good. No, we're going to actually see in our moments of most profound, incomprehensible grief, how those were the greatest moments of our life. Now, how do you wrap your head around that? Like I said, some of these things we'll only see when Mashiach comes. But when Mashiach comes, yes, we'll have our cake and we'll eat it too. We'll have the higher good and we'll relate to it at the same time.
Okay, let's. It's uh, not achievable in this world. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes we get a glimpse. Okay, let's 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 continue next week. So we shouldn't try to figure it out.